0: something we hope will be a series of long-running, of course, not with Dr. Trinkline, but uh, with uh, a long list of interesting speakers. And uh, before I go any further, I'd like to make an announcement. I want you to notice the dates on the board, it just so happens that Dr. Trinkline is unable to be here on Sunday. So the dates will change to 4-18-25 on November 1st. But, come next Sunday and be surprised. Uh, We're going to work something else out for Sunday just so long as we can keep the continuity going. So why don't we bow our heads for a moment of prayer and then we'll get started. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to meet with thee and with each other, to learn some more about your creation, your word, and your message that comes from thee to us. We ask that you would guide us this day. Keep, uh, give us attentive minds, curious minds, and those minds that are desirous of knowing thee better and learning about thee more. Be with us, Heavenly Father, and guide us, for we ask them in Jesus' name. Now, without wasting any more time, Let me introduce to you Dr. Fred Trinkline, who is a teacher at Long Island Lutheran High School and a scientist of, note. Dr. Trinkline. Good morning.
1: Welcome on this beautiful and chilly Sunday morning. Come on in, please. I guess we need a few more chairs. I was just telling Margaret that it was warmer in Siberia To do with the relationship between science and Christian faith, which is very much in the news today. I've brought a, an October issue of Science Digest that I'm going to refer to shortly. And one of the feature articles is called The Genesis War. Now, the term war, and when it comes to science and religion, had been abandoned for some years. In fact, there was a, a book out at the turn of the century called A History of the War Between Science and Christianity. And oddly enough, the book was written by the president of Cornell University. In fact, it was the first president, the beginning of Cornell. And as you may have heard, or maybe you're not aware of the fact, that Cornell University was founded with the distinct purpose of avoiding any contact between science and religion, or between learning and religion. It says in the constitution of Cornell University that this university shall not be controlled by any religious body and at no time shall there be a majority of religious people on the board of directors of any one denomination. Very interesting and the first president wrote this history of the warfare and went through one science after the other and said that the issue has been settled. There has been a war between science and religion and science won. So let's forget it and get on with it. Well, it's quite a few years later now, and we have an article in this month's issue of Popular Magazine, The Genesis War. So maybe the war isn't over, and maybe the term war is not even a good one. So that's what we'd like to concentrate on and talk about. And I'd like to begin it. This morning, when we talk about what is science by reading from God's Word in the book of Job, chapter 38, verse 1 through 5. The Lord said, and he's talking to Job, Who are you to question my wisdom with your ignorant, empty words? Stand up now like a man and answer the questions I ask you. Were you there when I made the world? If you know so much, tell me about it. Who decided how large it would be? Who stretched the measuring line over it? Do you know all the answers? (laughs) Well, God is answering the question of whether the war is over or not, and whether science won, whether mankind won, or whether he's winning. If you know so much, he's telling Job, tell me about it. Were you there? How big did I make the universe? And in discussing the question this morning of what science is, I'd like to give a few illustrations of where scientists are at today and what science really is. And the question that God is asking Job here is a very current one also. How big is it? How big is the universe? In another week we're going to start a rerun of the popular television program called Cosmos by Carl Sagan. Dr. Sagan, it just so happens, is a professor at Cornell University. And when we were at Cornell not long ago, where our daughter was going to school, I took the opportunity to talk to Dr. Sagan and ask him how he thinks his ideas of the universe corroborate with his own religious views. It was one of a series of interviews I've been doing over the years of scientists around the world and what they think about God. And we'll refer to that a little bit later also. But Carl Sagan is generally considered now to be sort of the high priest of the universe. And in the first program of Cosmos, which is going to be played again shortly on public television, he starts out the program by saying, the cosmos is all there ever was, and all there is, and all there ever will be. That's a big mouthful. That's a pretty big statement. Who is this man who knows everything? God says, tell me about it. Well, if you go to a scientist and ask him how big the universe is or what it's like, he's going to talk to you in scientific terms. And this morning we're going to see what does that really mean. So I'd like to take an illustration from three sciences to show you where science is at today. We'll talk a moment about astronomy, and then we will talk about physics, and then a moment about biology. That's just about the whole works. That's life, and that's matter, and that's the universe. Now, astronomers will tell you that today we believe that the universe came into being with a great big explosion. In fact, a new book that just came out has an introduction by Carl Sagan, and the introduction says, about five billion years ago, something happened. That's the first sentence in the book. And it says, well, what happened? A great big explosion took place, and matter stretched out and is still flying in all directions. That's called the Big Bang Theory. Now the Big Bang Theory is based on a little piece of film, hardly as big as your fingernail, that scientists look at, and they find little marks of the diffraction of light, a spectrum of light, that has been displaced a little more than scientists had expected it to be displaced. And therefore, the interpretation is that what they're looking at, that made that little mark of light, is moving. Just like the policeman spots you in your car on the highway with a gun and radar called the Doppler effect, so a scientist will look at a star in the distance and see how fast it's moving. Exactly the same principle that the police use on the highway. Now if you're going 70 miles an hour, the radar is going to be shifted in his machine a certain amount, and it says 70 miles an hour. If a star is moving a million miles an hour, like Carl Sagan would say, or even billions of miles an hour, then the lines are going to be shifted more. That's called the theory of the red shift. It has nothing to do with Russia. It's the red shift of the lines of light from the star in one direction on the photographic plate. How true is that? If light has been traveling all this time through space, maybe it got a little tired. Maybe it's shifting over a little bit because it just doesn't want to go the way it went before. Maybe something got in the way. We don't know. But the consensus is among scientists in astronomy today that the best interpretation of the red shift is that a long time ago there was a big explosion and now things are all flying apart in all directions. Not all scientists believe that, but the majority do. Now let's take the other illustration in physics. Physics is concerned with the idea of what is everything made of? What's the smallest particle of matter? Let's keep breaking it up and finding smaller and smaller pieces. And here we find ourselves in a situation in Long Island that out in Suffolk County, they're building a machine that's going to cost the taxpayer over $500 million, plus overruns. And it will be finished sometime after 1985 or '90 for the express purpose of finding out if everything in the universe is made of tiny particles Called quarks. Now, whoever made that word up? Well, Murray Galman, Dr. Galman in California, said he was sitting there one Sunday on the afternoon and that word came to him. Quark. Now, everyone of German extraction knows that quark is like cottage cheese. Well, maybe the whole universe is made of cottage cheese. He made the word up, it came to him. Just like Newton one day was sitting there, saw something fall on the ground, and said, ah, let's call it gravity. And after that, we don't question it anymore. We say, well, that's gravity. Well, Newton made it up. And so did Gell-Mann. make up the word quark. Well, what's holding the quarks together? We don't know. We haven't seen one yet. But we have an idea that the quarks are held together by gluons. That's the name, gluons. And so it goes on and on. I heard one physicist from MIT say one time, Dr. Victor Weisskopf, is the quark the end of it, or is everything else made of something even smaller? And Dr. Weisskopf said, I sincerely hope that the quark is the end of it, because I'd like to get the impression that we're getting somewhere before I die. Well, I have another theory that God makes more and more particles the more and more machines we make. It would be a shame if we made that 500 million dollar machine and there were no quarks. Very bad politics. And I think it's the same thing with the stars. The bigger the telescopes, and we're now talking about a 600 inch diameter telescope they're going to build naturally in Texas, or somewhere down there. It would be a shame if there weren't any more stars to look at. If we would just see darkness, why not? And that's a theory, by the way. You can't disprove because how in the world are you going to prove that something was not there before before you saw it? Well, are there quarks? We don't know. Now that's the second time we've said we don't know. The universe is it. A big explosion that is flying in all directions? We don't know. But it's certainly interesting to contemplate. Is a quark what what everything is made of? And already, in fact, they're talking about 18 different kinds of quarks. There's an up quark. They don't know what to call them anymore. There's a down quark. There's a colored quark. There's a charmed quark. There's a true quark. And an anti-true quark. And so it was on 18 different ways. And there will certainly be more. They're having a little trouble, by the way, building that machine out there because they can't get it cold enough. If you bring it here. They can't get it, cold they get it cold enough. How cold is cold? Well, they want to operate this machine, which will be 15 times as powerful as the strongest atom measure in the world at the present time at near absolute zero, which is 400 9 degrees below zero, and the machine is like four miles long. How do you keep it that cold? Well, you have to keep it with liquid helium, and they can't quite keep that down there, so they are having some trouble. Let's go to the third field of biology. Life. What is life? What is the mind? What is the brain? One of the authorities in this field is Sir John Eccles. A scientist in Switzerland who won the Nobel Prize for coming up with a theory of how messages are transmitted in the brain between one nerve and the other nerve. You know, the nerve endings do not touch each other. There's a little space there, the ganglion. There's a place where there is no physical contact. Something like the electricity getting into your house from the street, there is really no wire between there, you know, it jumps. In the transformer there's a jump. Well, in the same way, there's a jump between the two nerves and how that's transmitted. And I heard Sir John Eccles tell a convention of Nobel Prize winners recently that we really don't have any idea what the human mind does when it memorizes something. He cannot find, he said in his laboratory, where memory is located he can find no scientific explanation why a person when he wakes up in the morning should think that he's the same person who went to sleep the night before. And he has come to a conclusion, he told these 4,000 people assembled there, that there are two parts to a human being. The brain, which is the physical connections and nerves and so on, and the mind, which is not physical at all, he said. It is the human spirit. And he said it must be immortal because it has no physical basis. So now we're finally down to a point where a scientist not only said we don't know, but where he says something else is required in order to explain life. So now we're down to the topic. Of the contact between science and other things that science cannot explain. So it is very much appropriate that we should decide which questions can we decide scientifically and which questions must we answer in some other manner. And that is the express purpose of this series we're doing on Sunday mornings. What kinds of questions should we take to a laboratory and for what kind of questions should we go to God's Word? If we can make that decision in each particular problem we face, we will have gone a long way to simplifying daily living and in resolving the heated controversies that are presently (coughs) raging about whether really, religion is necessary as some people will tell you who are supposedly scientific or whether we can eventually solve all our problems with the human brain. Now science in recent years has suffered something of a bad PR program. For a long time science was on top of the hill. From the time it was first developed in its present form, in the Reformation, by the way, the Reformation and its freedom of thought is what gave birth to modern science, not the Renaissance, not the searching of Greek writings and looking at Greek statues, as many secular textbooks will try to tell you, but rather the freedom of thought that Luther and the other reformers encouraged gave birth to the scientific inquiry, for example, that Newton performed, who was a deeply religious person, and Galileo, who was very religious, who was not trying to tell people that the more science you study, the less you need God. Since that time, science and technology, its partner, technology is the application of science, engineers and engineering, these two have brought out so many new inventions and things that have made our way of life easier that the impression grew that sooner or later we can solve all our problems. But then what happened? We got faster cars and faster planes, but we also got pollution. And we got all kinds of other problems that we didn't have before science came on the scene. We started facing problems like, is nuclear power safe? They didn't have that problem at Luther's time. Nuclear power was there. Nuclear power was present in the Garden of Eden. Why didn't Adam use it? The light of the garden. Well, God didn't see fit to reveal to people what nuclear power was at that time. But now we have it. We have it for the last forty years or so, and at first it was going to be a great blessing and solve all our problems. (coughs) Energy. And now we have two heated, two sides arguing this heated question of, is it really safe? <clears throat> Should we continue developing it? Now, is that the fall of science? Are scientists to blame for the misuse of nuclear power? The answer, obviously, is no. Knowledge, which nuclear power represents, is not good or evil. It's the way you use it that counts. One scientist told me, if you take a knife, the knife itself is not good or evil. But the person who uses it has to make the decision, is he going to use it to slice bread or to cut somebody's throat? It's the same knife. The technology is the same. The application is different. So it's not the science that is to blame, it's the people. Science is not good or evil, but scientists are, and other people. They have to make moral choices. But because of the bad publicity and the misuse of scientific discoveries, about 10 or so years ago, scientists got a bad name. And some people got the impression if we would do less of this investigating, perhaps the world would be better off. Maybe we shouldn't look into all these secrets of the universe. Maybe there's something lurking there that we shouldn't discover. Maybe God doesn't want us to do these things. I heard Dr. von Braun talk about this one time, the man who helped us get to the moon by building the Saturn V rocket. He was a deeply religious person. And a woman wrote to him one time and said, Dr. von Braun, she's concerned about this moon effort. She said she reads the Bible every day. And from what she reads, she doesn't think we ought to go to the moon. And furthermore, she said, she bets that if we go, we're not going to make it, and we're not going to get back. And Dr. von Braun wrote her back and said, Madam, I also read the Bible. And I don't find in the Bible anywhere where it says you should not go to the moon. But I do find a few places, he told her, where it says you shouldn't bet. <laughs> we're so eager, you see to take our preconceived notions and then, in the universe and in the Bible, find places where those notions are substantiated, instead of keeping an open mind and saying, well, what is God really trying to tell us in the universe and in God's Word? We don't have to worry that we're going to discover something out there in the universe that God doesn't want us to know. If God doesn't want us to know something, we won't know it. Period. We don't have to worry that if we read the Bible we're going to find something that's bad for us. God told us to study it. The same God put the universe there and put his word there. They cannot conflict with each other. God does not contradict himself. He's not going to make a universe and say, don't look at it. This is one reason I got into science, by the way. When I was younger, my teachers told me, don't study science too much because it may affect your faith. Well, what happens when you tell a kid you should not do something? I learned something from that in teaching now. If I want students to read something, I will hold the book up, and I'll say, this book you should not read. The name of it is The God of Science. You should not read this book, especially you should not read page 95, and put it in the library. In another week, the book is worn out. Page 95 is missing. You don't tell a young person, don't do this, you give them something to do instead. Well, I couldn't figure out why shouldn't I study science? How come? As a matter of fact, when I was in the seventh grade, and this was a Lutheran school, the teacher said we're not going to have tryouts for the choir. All the people who were able to pass the tryout went to the choir. The ones that did not make it went into another room and studied science. So here, Luther said, you know, music is next to godliness. Here's all the the godly people went in there to sing. (laughs) I didn't want to sing. So I purposely failed the test. And I got in there and we rubbed rabbit furs and we made things stick up. They're fantastic. maybe I was, I don't know, but I wanted to find out is it really ungodly to study science? And the more I studied and the more schools I went to, the more I found that in science God reveals himself as the powerful Creator. And when I got to university I walked into a science classroom and the man said, I'm a Christian. Then I walked into a psychology classroom And the fellow gets up and says, I'm here to destroy your Christian faith. He said, I have three degrees in theology, and I know there's nothing to it. Well, I wasn't prepared for that. The teacher could say, when you study psychology, you're going to have your faith tested. that's how it turned out. doesn't mean all psychologists are ungodly, but that particular one sure tried. And in mathematics, the fellow said, I want to talk a little bit about God in here. So there's no such thing that knowledge of one kind is more godly than knowledge of another kind. All knowledge is from God. The misuse of it is from Satan. Let's not give the devil too much credit and say that he can make things that will tempt our faith. When Galileo first looked through the telescope, I think it was the first night that he looked up there and saw things that no one had ever seen before. Jupiter rings around Saturn and then in the daytime he looked and he saw spots on the Sun and people came up to him and said you mustn't do that there are no spots on the Sun it's perfect God said he looked at it and it was good don't you tell us there are spots on it and Galileo said why don't you look through the telescope And to my utter amazement, as I read this over and over, that fellow looked through the telescope, saw the spots, and said, Galileo, you've got to stop looking through there, because the devil is putting spots into this instrument to destroy your faith. And they kept after that man so hard that finally he repented in a church at the altar. Not so much there were spots in the sun, but all his other theories. Because if he hadn't, he would have been tortured. How can we avoid this kind of thing? Galileo is a very famous case. Another one is, of course, that of Darwin. I mean, spots in the sun is one thing. You can take them or leave them. We've now finally decided you can believe in spots in the sun and still be a Christian. We saw spots in the sun in Siberia They were over here too, but I didn't to watch them disappear as the moon covered them up. But when it comes to Darwin, now we're talking about something else. Now a fellow comes up and says, perhaps life did not start the way people thought it did. Maybe it evolved over long periods of time. Now it's closer to home. Now we're talking about how we got here, Not how Bob Spots Spots got here. It's interesting in class and in lectures when I talk about evolution. People will bring the term evolution. Do I believe in evolution? Everybody immediately thinks monkeys. Well, evolution applies to many different fields of science. The way the world got the way it is, as I said before, the Big Bang Theory, the explosion, that's a theory of evolution too, you know. And I can talk about that without people getting very excited in churches because they don't know which way is right. They haven't heard of whether the Big Bang is godly or not. But we've all heard about the controversy between Darwin and Christianity, that you either believe in the monkeys or you believe in the Bible. Well, that's what this particular article in the October issue is all about. Which one is more scientific to believe that we evolved over long periods of time or that God made it very suddenly? Now the two people who are arguing here, both of whom I know, scientific books than any human being who ever lived. He's up to about 250 different books in science. He writes five or six at a time in the book, and they're all down and doing a little here and a little there. The other one is Dwayne Kish, who is also a PhD, like I said, and in the same field, both in biology. And they argue deeply about which is more scientific. And I like a statement here, in the very beginning that lays it out pretty well. It says, "...neither creation nor evolution qualifies as a scientific theory, and each is equally religious." What he is saying is that a theory, in order to qualify as a theory, has to have certain qualifications. And that neither one of these ideas, evolution or scientific creationism, has enough background information at the present time to put it into the field of science. You have to decide, one way or the other, which one you would like to believe. And that brings us down exactly to the issue for today. What is science? I'd like to Write two or three summary statements down and next time we're going to do the same thing with faith to see when does something qualify as a science and when does something qualify as religious faith. Now, first of all, in order to be scientific, something has to be observable. If you cannot study it in some way, either in a room with test tubes or out under the stars with a telescope, then a scientist cannot talk about it. Secondly, it has to be repeatable. You do it over and over. In my physics laboratory, I tell the students to make every measurement three times. Everything, three times. They say, well, why not once? We don't have time. I said, do it once, and then you tell me. So the first thing they do, the first day of class, is to measure the table. Well, you measure the table once, you think you know how wide the table is. You measure it twice, and then you begin to wonder how wide the table is, because it's not the same, and they kids will come up and say, how come I didn't get the same reading? They say, why don't you do it again? Then they do it again and it. they can't lay the thing down the same way three times in a row. Or they don't look at it the same way three times in a row. They said, well, now if you measure it a thousand times, what do you think you'd get? Well, you get an average. Exactly. Science is always an average. There is never any absolute truth. Nothing is ever absolutely true because you can never get it absolutely correct. You can just do it over and over and over and come to a conclusion that this is probably the correct answer. Never absolutely. One scientist told me no amount of measuring, no amount of experiment, will ever make a theory absolutely true. But one experiment can disprove. For instance, there's a theory, and when something you see is measured over and over and over and it seems to be true, then we call it a theory. A theory is a guess. It's a guess because you've tried it over and over and it seems to be true. I'm supposed to drop this chalk and come down, right? In fact, it comes down so often that if I hold it here and ask you when I let it go, which way will it go? He says, down. How do you know? How does the chalk know? Does the chalk have to go down? Who told the chalk it has to go down? Well, the law of gravity. Well, Newton made the up, right? Why? Because he dropped it over and over. Well, what if somebody came through the door and said, I just dropped the chalk and went up? And you say, uh, "Tell me about it." Now you're facing the question: Did it drop up, or is it crazy? What's so happens is that a larger percentage of people are crazy than chalks that drop up. <laughs> so you reach the conclusion: it's right? <laughs> crazy. But maybe he's not. Maybe it dropped up, and you miss one of the great scientific breakthroughs of all time. That's how science is. I talked to a scientist in Oslo about that. asked him about God and I said, suppose you heard that somebody rose from the dead. As a physicist, what would you do? He said, as a physicist, I would write it on a card and put it in my file and say somebody said a person rose from the dead. And I could never take that card out and say it didn't happen. Somebody said it. No matter how many other cards there are that say people could not rise from the dead, this one says it. As an honest scientist, he said, "I'd have to leave that card in there." Science is not a set of laws. In our latest science books now, we don't use the word "law" anymore. There are no scientific laws, as though God made a law that had to do this. We now use the term "principle." and say, when we do something over and over, this is what usually happens. This is the average of the readings. But what's the upshot of all this? you will never believe a theory. Even the person who makes it up doesn't believe it. I had a chance to talk to Sir Fred Hoyle out at Stony Brook, who was here from Cambridge University, and I said, Dr. Hoyle, do you know that your theory about the universe is upsetting a lot of people, especially Christians, who say that the theory
0: that the world never had a beginning and never will end
1: is ungodly. And he said, well, I didn't know that people were upset about that. I said, well, what are you going to do about this? And he said, well, tell them not to worry because I don't believe the theory myself. (laughs) You don't? He said, of course not. I have rejected it and I've come up with a new one. You don't believe a theory. A theory is something a scientist throws off in order to stimulate thinking. And it's nothing at all unusual for one scientist to have two different theories. Don't believe a theory. So when people ask, do I believe the theory of evolution? I say, no, of course not. Ah, they say, it's undecided. But I said, I don't believe the theory of gravity either. I don't believe the theory of thermodynamics. I don't believe all the other theories in the world because they were never intended to be believed. None of them are ever absolutely true. They're there to stimulate thinking. Belief, which we're going to take up the next time, is a matter of what you feel about things. You believe in motherhood and in your country. These are not things you put in the laboratory. You cannot put them into the laboratory. But a theory is a guess based on observations that are repeatable, but it is never absolute, always tentative. In other words, science always answers the question How does this happen? How does that happen? Let's measure it. Science can never answer the question, why does this happen? And why does that happen? I've conditioned my classes in this respect for any time somebody in the class asks the question why, the students say, God only knows. <laughs> God only knows. How does this happen? Let's go and find out. It forces every student to say, can I ask this question to begin with the word how? If I cannot answer, ask it, with a how question, it does not belong in this subject. It is now a question of religion. Now, unfortunately, I teach in the Lutheran High School where we can talk about both in the same classroom. I don't have to say in class. That's a why question. We don't talk about that here. Unfortunately, in this country, it is illegal to talk about God in a public elementary or high school. I have run into that over and over. I've been asked to speak in public schools and I got a call one night from a principal who said "You're scheduled to speak about science in our assembly. We have canceled it. Why? Because last week he spoke in Hex High School and they said he talked about God. And we have enough trouble in this school without God. No wonder. <laughs> <laughs> I got a phone call from Texas. Superintendent of schools he said, we're looking through textbooks and your textbook on astronomy is very good, but we can't use it. It mentions God. He said, what's wrong with God in Texas? <laughs> they said, down here you cannot teach a religion in public school when you mention God is teaching religion. I said, I'm quoting Isaac Newton. He said, you have to paraphrase Isaac Newton. He said, God. Well, Isaac Newton said, at the end of his life, what is the most important thing I ever discovered? The most important thing is not calculus, not the laws of motion, not gravitation, not optics. All of these he worked in, my most important discovery was that Jesus Christ is my Savior. If I cannot say that in a classroom in physics, I have no academic freedom. Thank God I have that academic freedom to say that in a classroom in a Christian high school. I referred before to the interviews here and there around the world. I put those together in a little book called The God of Science, in which I wrote to a hundred scientists, Nobel Prize winners in various countries, and asked them, can I come and talk to you about God? And half of them said, yes, come. And do you know of all those interviews, Only two, only two said we do not believe there is a God. That's a much smaller percentage than I had expected to run into. That's a smaller percentage than people would tell you about science. And they'd say scientists in general don't believe in God. I think the impression is created because so often we tell scientists, talk just about science, don't talk about God. And when I asked them, many of them said, we've never had a chance to talk about our religious faith.
0: One man said, I haven't talked to a news reporter in 20 years, but nobody ever
1: asked me about God, you come. And there in his 80s, in Germany, ill health, the man went on and on. First he said, I'll give you 20 minutes, and an hour went by, and he said, oh, let's go on. Scientists are eager to talk about themselves as people, not just as scientists. Well, what have we talked about today? That there is a distinction between science and faith, and that the distinction is not necessarily one that one is winning and the other one is losing, but rather that the distinction is that in science we ask questions, how? Did God make the universe? And in, as we will see in the next topic, in religious questions, we find out the reasons why. We can really think of life and the whole universe as a black box. I passed this little thing around the classes, and I find this kind of around the of the next thing. take a look at this, and I'm going to have a little guessing contest. What is it? What is it? You know when a person first looks at life or in the universe, the question arises, what is it? Kids are curious. If we stay as curious our whole lives as children are when they're first aware of their mental powers, we'd all be geniuses. But what do we do? We take the curiosity and we say, shut up this on, we're going to learn
2: now.
1: We stifle it. We officially side with and say, oh, you've got to do it this way because I've written my lesson plan, and therefore, what you're just asking us to fit in today is too involved. So, I ask that another time." The next time, the fifth Why mustn't be important? Mustn't be important. The universe is a black box. We can't ever really open it. We can shake it. We can look at its color. We can lift it. In science you go on and on, there's a hundred different ways of probing the black box that God put there. But what is in it is God's secret, and he wants us to try and try it out. And someday, well, I can't wait to ask God and Galileo and all the other guys, what is really, is there really a gravity? Show me a chalk that falls off. I've been buying this here, and maybe that's the only thing. Well, we're at the end the bells, have been moving for some time, which means a lot. time to quit for today, but perhaps we have time for one or two questions before I see you again in two weeks. It was originally going to be one, but I've been invited up to receive the inauguration of a dear friend of mine, the president of the college in New Hampshire, and our daughter, who went before now, also happens to live along the way in Boston, and gives us a chance to visit her.
0: We have time for a
1: question. It's about 10 minutes to 9. To 10, rather. If not, I want to thank you for your attention, and we'll see you again in two weeks. Thank you. There are some copies of this book up here for people who would like to get it. It's only $2. I got your first offer. So
0: Bill will enjoy this. Thank you for getting the books. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. Any other time, because he's trying to get up there every week. So if you need anything, just give us a ringling. Are you?
1: I'm I do not know. Think. It's like Yes, we'll see you in two weeks. It like the natural fire
2: yeah. with, with crystals crystallized nitro fiber. I I,
1: know, you know, the DSM, I don't think there's anything involved in the theory of the I think life I think life is have to cut it Thank yeah. you. I don't know. I don't know Yeah, Thank
2: you.